prime numbers have fascinated mathematicians since there were mathematicians to be fascinated, and the prime number theorem is one of the crowning achievements of the 19th century. The theorem answers, in a precise form, a very basic and naive sounding question. How many prime numbers are there? Proved in 1896, the theorem marked the culmination of a century of mathematical progress, and is also at the heart of one of the biggest unsolved problems in mathematics today. With me to discuss the prime number theorem are Simon Myerson, a fourth-year DPhil student in mathematics at Oriel College, Sophia Lindquist, a first-year DPhil student in mathematics at Keeble College, and Jamie Beacom, a first-year DPhil student also in mathematics at Balliol College. Thank you very much for joining me. Before we begin, we should mention that we are recording this podcast as part of two Oxford podcast series, Secrets of Mathematics and the recently started series In Our Spare Time which has a rather more general remit. Sophia, the title of the show is The Prime Number Theorem, so, well, we'd better start with the basics. What is a prime number? Sure. So we are looking at the natural numbers, as we like to call them in mathematics. So that's the counting numbers, one, two, three, four, and so on. And we say that one of these is a prime number if it's divisible by only one and itself. So we're thinking so two, three, five, seven, but, but not nine, because nine is... Three times three. Exactly, exactly. These things arise quite naturally in the study of the whole numbers. Can you explain why these numbers are important, why they come up? So, looking at any of these natural numbers, you know, we, we know that we can factorise it into prime numbers. So we can write it as a product of only prime numbers. And this can be done in a unique way up to the ordering of the prime numbers. So if we think of an example, say the number 40... Sure. I guess that's that's 2 times 2 times 2 times 5. That's exactly. It. And there's only one way of, of doing that. Yeah, sure, you can re order your 2 and 5s, but apart from but that, that's, it's that's the same that's right, same number. Okay, a question, I mean, do they go on forever? Do we, will we run out of prime numbers? They do indeed go on forever, as was proved, I suppose, by Euclid, uh, 300 BC or something like this. So what he noticed was that, so if you multiply together various prime numbers, and then you add 1 to this. So let's say I take 2 times 3, 2 and 3 are primes, and I add 1. Okay, so yeah, suppose we thought that mm. the only prime numbers in the world were 2 and 3. Sure, okay, sure, so let's we, we, we didn't, we thought, yeah. Okay. 2 and 3 are the only primes in the world. Okay, but what if I try to, yeah, I multiply 2 by 3, and I add 1. So I get 7. Now, this number can't be divisible by 2, and it can't be divisible by 3, because you'll get remainder 1 because of the way I constructed this. So 7 can't be divisible by any of the known primes, let's say. Yeah. But it must have a prime factor, because you just told us that all numbers, I mean, even more than just have prime factors, can be written as a product of primes. So exactly. So in this way we've constructed now a number which must have a new prime factor, which wasn't known. Yeah, or could be prime or itself. could be like prime itself, itself, like 7, seven yeah. happens to be, yeah. So if we generalise this idea to not only 2 and 3 other known <laughs> primes, but let's say we have lots of known primes, we multiply them all together and we add 1, and the same argument goes through anyway. Either our new number is a prime itself, or it's divisible by some new prime. So if I was labouring under the impression that I had you know, all the primes in the world in, in my box, you'd come along and you'd just multiply them all together and add 1, and then that would force me to include a new prime in, in my box, so I couldn't have had a finite number to begin with. Yeah. Jamie, perhaps you could tell me, we're skipping ahead two millennia now, around sort of late 18th century, um, there was a conjecture made about how many 
prime numbers there were up to a threshold. Okay, so there's this um, mathematician that's quite well known among mathematicians called uh, Carl Friedrich Gauss. And um, around the age of 15 or 16, when he was doing various experiments with uh, numbers, he noticed that if you... Well, just to stop by experiments, you don't necessarily mean, you know, in a lab with a test tube, but you mean he's doing lots of calculations, he's looking yeah. at tables, he's just yeah. trying to work out... He's, he's doing lots of calculations and looking for patterns. So he, um, so he noticed that if you take, let's say you pick a natural number, let's say, I'm going to pick a, an arbitrary one called n, for example. So n. Um, and you take the numbers n n plus 1, n plus 2, and you go all the way up to n plus 1,000, and you look at all the primes in that, that group of numbers. As you go up, as n changes, the number of primes in that group of numbers decreases by a factor of about 1 over the logarithm of n, where the logarithm of n is a special kind of um, function I guess we should take a bit of time to actually talk about what this function is, because it's going to play a major role in the precise statement of the prime number theorem. Simon, do you want to explain for us the, the logarithm? I, I, I throw in one number, I get another number out. But what sort of properties does it, this function, the logarithm, have? Well, there are actually many functions which are called logarithms. Um, perhaps the easiest one to explain is the logarithm to base 10 we say. Uh, so this is, roughly speaking, this is the number of digits it takes to write down the number. For example, the logarithm of 10 is 1, base 10 logarithm of 10 is 1, um, the base 10 logarithm of 100 is 2, and the base 10 logarithm of 1000 is 3. And what's happening here is that the number of zeros is going up, that you're writing down, you write down the number, and the base 10 logarithm goes up with, with the, that number of zeros, that numbers of, number of digits. Now, you, you may perhaps have heard that you don't have to write down numbers using tens, hundreds, and thousands as we do. You can use, um, you can use a different base instead of 10. So, for example, you can use... Uh, you can write down numbers in binary, which is how computers store numbers. Um, and this uses the number 2 instead of the number 10. Um, in this case of uh, logarithms of base 2, um, I guess if we take you know, 2 to the power of 5, so it's 32, the logarithm is kind of the inverse of that process. So instead of computing okay, 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 times 2, 2 times itself 5 times being 32, the logarithm asks the inverse question. It's, how many times did I have to multiply 2 by itself to get 32? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And the uh, base 10 logarithm of a number is the number of times you have to multiply 10 by itself to get that number. So, yeah, log base 10 of 100 is 2, and 1,000 is 3, as you said before. Exactly. Um, but the prime number theorem uses this thing called the natural logarithm. So that's logarithm to a very special base. Yes, so it's it's the logarithm to uh, to the base e, e being a, a, a special number beloved of mathematicians. It's not a it's not a whole number. So this this idea that it's the number of digits you use won't won't quite work. You can't write down numbers using the base e instead of the base ten. Um, it's if you like somewhere in between logarithm to the base two and logarithm to the base three. 
it's distinguished by special properties when we come to look at calculus, when we come to uh, try and differentiate and integrate it. In some sense, just the same kind of object as this log to the base 10 and log to the base 2. In fact, it, it's related by just a constant multiple, so each of these different yeah. um, log bases. But it kind of has a special place because of these calculus properties, which maybe we won't describe in too much detail in this show. The uh, derivative uh, d by dx of the natural log of, of x is, is 1 over x. And you get well, a very similar relationship with these other log functions, but you're wrong by a constant. And so there's this very special function, this natural logarithm function. And now we'll just go back to Jamie. So what was Gauss's observation connecting primes and this logarithm function? So, as I said before, Gauss noticed that when you sort of take these groups of 1,000 consecutive numbers, um, let's say starting with n, as n grows and changes, the number of primes in this group of 1,000 numbers, I'd say, um, decreases by uh, approximately 1 over the logarithm of n. He kind of conjectured or put forward this idea that perhaps the number of um, primes less than a given number might be somehow connected to the logarithm of n in a very precise kind of way. I think if I recall what he kept a, a diary when he was you know, a very precocious teenager and huge number of insightful comments that people found there many years later. And he's had this observation that the, the density of primes around n seem, looks like it's about 1 over log n, 1 over the natural log of n. And so if you kind of integrate this up by you know, summing over all the scales, you get the conjecture that the number of primes less than n is going to be about n divided by the natural log of n. I mean, so how big a number is this? Because obviously not every number is prime, so it needs to be less than n. Mm -hmm. But, so this log function, it does tend to infinity with n, but it, it tends to infinity pretty slowly. Yeah. Uh, yes, so hang on. Let me think for a moment. If I've done my mental arithmetic correctly, the, uh, the natural logarithm is uh, roughly twice the base 10 logarithm. Well, very roughly. R very roughly, okay. So the natural logarithm of a million is very roughly 12. So a million is a very large number going in, but its logarithm is very approximately 12. It's a smallish number. So we're suggesting that there is going to be roughly, again, we may say more precisely what we mean by this, about a million divided by 12 prime numbers less than a million. Indeed. So Gauss couldn't prove this conjecture as an observation. I think it's quite a romantic story, actually, because he was looking in these tables that he had, and he was opposite pages. He had a table of the first thousand prime numbers and a log table. And it was only because of this you know, chance proximity of these two pieces of information that he, he got drawn into thinking, oh, I wonder how many... Oh, it looks like these logs on this other side of the page. Um, just a thing, if we go back to Euclid's argument... It gives us some prime numbers. How many does it give us? Yeah, so as you mentioned, it doesn't give you very many. Like, when we started with 2 and 3 were the known numbers, then the next one we got was 7, and then after that we got 43, and obviously we are skipping almost all the prime numbers. Like, there are lots of prime numbers between, well, 7 and 43. So I think we should get roughly, uh, logarithmically, many prime numbers in this way. So that means that, as Jamie was saying, Gauss conjectured that we should have 
n divided by log n. Which right. is basically, we should think of very nearly n. Very nearly I n. mean, so it's still a proportion tending to zero, because log does tend to infinity. But, you know, there's a lot of primes out there. It's the conjecture of Gauss. Whereas, R- whereas Euclid's argument will give you log n primes, which is, as Simon was describing, a very small number. So less than a million, that would give you about 12 primes, which is obviously completely wrong. <laughs> Okay, so we have two problems here. One is the very precise conjecture of there are really exactly this many primes. But we're even struggling to find more than logarithmically many primes. But I guess maybe this is where we can start talking about um, Chebyshev. Mm. So this is how we're skipping ahead, about 50 years from Gauss. This is about 1852, I think. Jamie, you're going to talk to us a bit about Chebyshev's estimates. Okay, yeah. Chebyshev was a Russian mathematician... He didn't prove the prime number theorem, but he was able to provide quantitative bounds on the um, or the number of primes less than or equal to n um, in terms of the function n over log n, which appears in the prime number theorem. Actually, the bounds that he proved were that um, for some number b, which was which was almost one. He showed that um, the number of primes less than or equal to n lies between n over log n b and 6n over 5 log n b. Right? 6 over 5, well, that's about 1.2. So he, he got it like pretty close on both sides. But I mean, that, that's still not quite enough. Two things to say here. One is that, so we might say this is an order of magnitude estimate. So he's shown that the order of magnitude of the growth of uh, the, the number of primes uh, less than n is indeed of the order of magnitude of n over log n. But I think we should now, I mean, we chat about Chebyshev's methods, but actually just um, nail down what the precise statement of the prime number theorem is so we can tell how this is something further than what Chebyshev managed to prove. Simon, do you want to take this up for us? How good an estimate was Gauss's conjecture? Well, the prime number theorem is is usually stated by mathematicians in terms of the number of primes between 1 and x, where x is some large number. So informally, the conjecture is that this the number of primes between 1 and x is about x on log x, as we've been saying. Um, and more precisely, the claim is that uh, the difference between the number of primes up to x and x on log x is much smaller than x on log x. So the, the difference, the error, if you like, in, in this estimate is smaller than any fixed multiple of x on log x. This error, it can still go to infinity, but just much slower than the main term, than this x over log x. Yes. If you like the um, the ratio of the number of primes up to x to the quantity x on log x will become very close to one when x is large. So that was the conjecture that was going around in the nineteenth century, which indeed is now the theorem, the prime number theorem. Going back to Jamie, that's not quite what Chebyshev managed to prove. What Chebyshev showed was that this ratio lies between about 0.9 and 1.1, 1. 1, 
it's pretty pretty good, but and I mean it was and it was the first real. I mean, this is a major major forward. achievement. We, we shouldn't belittle Chebyshev's yeah. achievement. It was the first major step towards act, an actual um, proof of the well, primary theorem. Probably one of the first things that actually showed that it was yeah. open to attack. And now enter um, Riemann. Riemann wrote a single paper on number theory, and it revolutionised mathematics. It's a fear. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the ideas that Riemann introduced to try to understand the prime numbers? So, one of the most central tools which Riemann introduced is something we call the Riemann zeta function, which is... Well, in at least the first proof of the prime number theorem we had, which I assume we'll get to, uh, this function plays a major role in this proof. What's the definition of the Riemann zeta function? Right, uh, the definition of the Riemann zeta function, evaluated in uh, some point, let's call it S, is that you sum all the natural numbers from 1 all the way up to infinity, and then you take uh, 1 divided by n to the power of S. So if S was like 2 or something, we could, we're, we're computing 1 over 1 squared, yeah. plus 1 over 2 squared, plus 1 over 3 squared, plus 1 over 4 squared, and so on. Exactly. And so that's, guess, some number, and that's zeta of 2. Exactly. Zeta of 2 is, is that number. Why is this useful? So, yeah, uh, as you, uh, so Euler made this very nice observation that you can factorise this sum of... So, if in the case of zeta of 2, where you had 1 over 1 squared plus 1 over 2 squared, and so on, we can factorise this instead as a product over all prime numbers. Uh, so, in, so now we have a product of 1 divided by uh, 1 plus 1 over p squared. So, in a rather similar way that we can write all whole numbers as the product of primes, in fact, that fact allows us to prove that we can write this infinite sum as a product over primes of these simpler expressions, well, 1 over 1 minus 1 over p to the s. So, in the case of s equals 2, it's 1 over p squared. Euler thought about this for when s is a 1, 2, 3, 4. But Riemann extended this. For Riemann, what type of object was S? Simon. So Riemann, uh, Riemann considered the, this zeta function, so-called, when S was a complex number. The complex numbers are what are called the, the real numbers, so all of the, the decimals, if you like, pi and 10.1 recurring, and all these numbers that you can write out with uh, an infinite number of digits after the decimal point. And in addition, you throw in i, the imaginary unit, the square root of minus 1. So this is, this is referred to as, a, as an imaginary number because uh, there is no decimal number you can write down, which when you square, you get minus 1. No matter what number you write down, if you square it, you get a positive number. But if you define i to be some unspecified number, which when squared yields minus one, uh, you, can, you can form a perfectly good number system, if you like, by uh, multiplying i by real numbers and adding it to real numbers to create things like pi plus 2i, for example. One way of thinking about the complex numbers is if you, if you 
if by some lucky chance you should think about the real numbers on a, on a number line, um, a straight line with zero marked and one marked and every number having a place along this line, then the complex numbers uh, live, in, live in a plane. They live in a, a flat two-dimensional space with uh, zero marked and one marked and then I marked 90 degrees at a right angle to one. It's a shame that we're a, a radio podcast, but um, you can think very visually about the complex numbers, which I think is a, a very useful thing to do. So you can think in like two axes. You have a, a horizontal real axis, as Simon was saying, which is your number line from school, and then you have another axis, the imaginary axis, going at, at 90 degrees. Um, I, on the table in front of me, I'm crossing my hands at right angles, which I realise you can't see, which is not very helpful. Um, Sophia, so you've defined for us the Riemann zeta functions as infinite sum. It's one over 1 to the s plus 1 over 2 to the s, so on. Does that define the function on this entire plane? I'm afraid it doesn't. Damn. Damn. <laughs> if only that were the case. So what happened here was that I defined it as an infinite sum. And now obviously if each of the numbers in my sum is huge, and I keep adding up huge numbers, I'm just going to get something which just grows and grows and grows and doesn't really... Doesn't really make sense. It doesn't really make sense. So you have to put some kind of condition on what numbers you put in so that this doesn't happen. So it turns out that the precise condition you get is that the real part of your number s uh, has to be greater than 1. So this is like its horizontal coordinate, if we think about our axes, has to be you know, quite far to the right. It's got to be at least 1. The number has to be the, to the right of the number 1. Do you know what happens elsewhere? Are they kind of here be dragons? Or has Riemann just defined this crazy thing on some portion of the complex plane? So luckily for us, um, we have this concept uh, which allows us to... So we can, we can think of the kind of Riemann zeta function to be defined only, now to begin with, only with if the horizontal part is to the right of 1. But then uh, we have a theorem in uh, mathematics which allows us to extend this function also to the left of this point 1. So what happens is that my definition writing it as a sum won't give you the right answer, but there's still a unique way of kind of getting a value. So this zeta function assigns a value to every point to the right of, of 1. You can think of that as maybe some sort of smooth rubber sheet above the plane, which is, you know, how high it is above the plane is how big the function is. Then. It's a slightly tenuous analogy, but maybe think about that. And this theorem that Sophia just mentioned, this analytic continuation, is saying that there is a way, and in fact there's a unique way, of building a bit more rubber sheet over to the left, to the left of um, one, which smoothly continues this, this rubber sheet. And so we can actually get a function on, on the entire plane. Um, apart from one point, there's one point that... Apart from s equals 1, which is this point we've been mentioning all the time. So this is the actual point on the horizontal axis. This is a huge amount of abstract machinery. Okay, so Riemann didn't invent these complex numbers. They've been going around for about a century uh, before Riemann came along. Simon, can you maybe nail for us slightly more explicitly how uh, we can get a handle on the primes through this, this zeta function? Well... We've said that part of what makes the Riemann zeta function special is that it, it has this expression as a, it's an infinite sum, but it has an expression as a product over primes. And there is, in fact, a way to 
construct from the Riemann zeta function something which has an expression as a sum over primes, or a sum over powers of primes if precision is required. But it, to all intents and purposes, one can construct from the Riemann zeta function another complex function, so another function on the complex plane, which can be expressed as a sum over, not over all the numbers, but a sum over all the prime numbers. To be precise, one, one takes the logarithm of the Riemann zeta function, and then one takes the derivative of that function. So we've constructed this function using calculus by taking a derivative, and in fact, by using calculus again, by taking an integral of this new function, one can pick out the terms involving, uh, involving primes between 1 and x. And one can go from this infinite sum over all the primes to a sum over primes between 1 and x. It's a thing called Perron's formula, I guess you're thinking of. So this is all happening around 1860. But Riemann died quite shortly afterwards, he had a rather short, tragic life. And although he made some great insights into this function, he didn't manage to prove the problem of theorem. There was a key technical stumbling block to estimating this integral that would give you the number of primes less than x. Jamie, do you want to come in on, on what this key stumbling block was? Well, in order to estimate the integral um, which appears when you take the sum of the prime numbers less than or equal to x, Riemann realized that what you needed to do was um, shift the integral from one line to another. The process of doing that involves using a result known as um, Cauchy's theorem. But to do this, the terms which appear inside the integral, the things that we are integrating, the this uh, function involving the um, uh, logarithmic derivative of the Riemann zeta function uh, needs to satisfy some particular properties inside um, the region between the two lines that we're moving or integral between. That those that property could be summarized basically by saying that we would like the Riemann zeta function to be non-zero inside um, that that region between the two lines of integration. And really, the, the proof then of the prime number theorem was facilitated by Hadamard and to the Valley Poussin uh, coming along at the end of the 19th century um, and um, showing that this zero-free region existed. Riemann provided a sort of flat pack. If you could prove this zero-free region for the zeta function, then you could prove the prime number theorem. But it took another 35 years, until 1896, to show that zeta 1 plus it, so 1 is the real part and it is this imaginary part, that was never zero. And so, as Jamie described, you could move the integral, and the integral is easier to estimate when you've moved it. Simon, obviously, we have a rather general audience, but can you describe to us the, the key idea behind this proof of the zero-free region? Well, the first proofs that the Riemann zeta function possessed this zero-free region were relatively long and difficult compared to, the, compared to the demonstrations we find in our textbooks these days. But the underlying idea is much the same, and that's that all one really needs to show, first of all, is that the Riemann zeta function has no zeros on a line, on a certain straight line in the, in the complex plane. 
and one can one can show this by comparing the values of the Riemann zeta function near three points. One where it has this this alleged zero that we would like to prove doesn't exist. One is at the point one near the number one where we know that the Riemann zeta function is is very large, and the third point is. If you take one step from one to the point where there's supposed to be a zero, you take another step the same length, and that's the third point. If the Riemann zeta function has a zero with, with real part one, um, so if, if there is indeed a, a, a bad point where the logarithmic derivative of the Riemann zeta function has a, has a pole, and we need to move this integral past the pole, and that's going to, that's going to mess up the plan, um, we can deduce that the Riemann zeta function must in fact have another pole, um, a pole with real part one and imaginary part twice the imaginary part of the zero. Um, and we know that this isn't so, we know that the only pole of the Riemann zeta function is at one, um, and this will, this will enable us to, to prove by contradiction that it's not possible for the Riemann zeta function to have a zero with real part equal to one. In the details of the argument that Simon has just mentioned, uh, it all comes down, very curiously, to the cosine double angle formula, which I think any of our listeners who did AS-level maths um, will have learnt. And I remember thinking when I learnt this theorem during my master's that one could almost view, almost, the prime number theorem as a corollary of the cosine double angle formula. Okay, so we've reached 1900 and we proved the prime number theorem. And the curious state of affairs was that people began to realise that this complex analysis approach that Simon, Sophia and Jamie have been describing was not just one particular method that they had managed to successfully use to prove the prime number theorem, but in some ways was equivalent to the prime number theorem in a very precise sense that the prime number theorem was equivalent to showing that there were no zeros of the Riemann zeta function on the one line with real part equaling one. And so the general consensus was that this complex analysis machinery was completely necessary to prove the prime number theorem because it, it was equivalent to it. So there could never be what mathematicians call an elementary proof. Sophia, was this assumption correct? So it turns out, rather surprisingly, that this assumption was not correct. In 1948-49, uh, a Norwegian mathematician named Atle Selberg came along and, in fact, did give an elementary proof of the prime number theorem. And by elementary, you mean...? So by elementary, we mean here that there's no use of complex analysis uh, and tools like the Riemann zeta function... So the Riemann zeta function doesn't get a mention at it all? It doesn't get mentioned a single time in this proof. But secretly, we know it must be behind there somewhere, because this proof has to show there are no zeros on the one line at all. Um, how does the proof go, roughly? It splits into a couple of stages, I think. Right, so I guess roughly we can say the proof splits into two parts. Uh, so the first part is something we call Selberg's, form Selberg's formula, which, uh, instead of considering sums of primes, so a sum over primes, we are considering products of two primes, up to two primes. Um, and it turns out rather crucially that, in this approach, um, the term which should come from the zeros of the Riemann zeta function in the kind of original proof um, completely cancels. 
so we don't actually need to know anything about the zeros. They are that, and they cancel, and that's it. Uh, and then you have a second part of the proof, which is to actually show that this statement about sums of products of primes is strong enough to give the original prime number theorem. And that is an elementary but rather involved argument, if I remember correctly. Right. Um, Jamie, there was quite a lot of controversy at the time and for many years later between Selberg and an, a Hungarian mathematician called Paul Erdős, who also claimed to have, have found this elementary proof around the same time. Paul, Paul Erdős, as a lot of mathematicians will know, is quite a prolific publisher of material. He's, he's well known enough that in a similar way to which we have Bacon numbers for actors, we also have Erdős numbers for mathematicians. And um, he claimed that through collaboration with uh, Atle Selberg, sorry. Uh, so Sophia is our Norwegian pronunciation expert. <laughs> um, I'll just refer to him as Selberg now. <laughs> um, Erdős claimed that um, in collaboration with Selberg, he could also claim credit for the proof that Selberg provided of the prime number theorem using elementary methods because he claimed that without some communication or idea from him that he had uh, given to Selberg, Selberg would not have been able to complete the second part of the proof. Um, there's an apocryphal story um, uh, surrounding this sort of feud whereby uh, Selberg is supposed to have overheard in some university maths department another mathematician uh, saying that Paul Erdős and some Norwegian fellow had uh, found an elementary proof of the prime number theorem to which uh, he strongly objected and, uh, and went ahead and published his proof of the prime number theorem under his own name. There's an article online um, by, um, by Goldfeld that tries to clear up all the correspondence about who came first and what information passed between who, between Erdős and Selberg. Uh, which I invite you to read, but I'm not sure it completely uh, clarifies the issue. To, to close up, I mentioned in my introduction that the prime number theorem is at the heart of one of the big unsolved problems in mathematics uh, today. Simon, do you want to tell us what that problem is? So you're talking about the, uh, the Riemann hypothesis, which is, so we, we've, we've discussed this idea that in order to prove the prime number theorem, one needs to show that the the Riemann zeta function does not vanish at any point on a certain line in the complex plane. And the, um, the Riemann hypothesis is a conjectured description of where all the zeros of the Riemann zeta function are, all the points where the Riemann zeta function vanishes. And the conjecture is that, um, apart from some, uh, some very predictable, boring, well-understood zeros, all the zeros lie on, uh, on the line real part equals one-half. So this is a vertical line in the complex plane, a distance one-half to the left of this, this real part equals one, where we prove there are no zeros, and that's the prime number theorem. The conjecture is that, in fact, all the zeros lie a distance one-half to the left of that line. If we were to translate this property of the Riemann zeta function back into some property of prime numbers, the Riemann hypothesis were to be shown to be true, would tell us that the number of primes up to x would equal x over log x plus a very small error, plus an error that was about the square root of x, a little bit larger than the square root of x, but about that size. 
Um, at the moment, you would become a very famous mathematician indeed if you could show that the error was at most x to the power 0.9999. Simon, we're nearly at the end of the show, but do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like us to go home with? Well, I think something which I find interesting about this, uh, this area, we, we've spoken about the fact that there is, there is an elementary proof of the prime number theorem. There is a proof of the prime number theorem, which although it is perhaps complicated, certainly a little difficult to understand at first, I personally struggle to understand it. There is a proof which doesn't use this, this machinery of complex analysis and the logarithmic derivative and uh, these uh, zeros in the complex plane. The way this strikes me is that perhaps the perhaps this, this this machinery of complex analysis isn't necessary to prove the prime number theorem, um, but it might in some ways still be the best way to understand it. These connections between different areas of maths, in this case between complex analysis and number theory, are often things which lead to new directions for research and have quite surprising implications for uh, still other areas of maths. And in this case, that uh, complex analytic formulation of the uh, prime number theorem, I think it's fair to say, has led to some, uh, some very far-reaching generalizations. And although we certainly don't have time to go into this, I think one could argue fairly convincingly that it's connected, for example, to uh, Andrew Wilde's famous proof of Fermat's last theorem. Well, thank you very much, Sophia, Jamie, Simon. We've covered a lot of ground uh, in 45 minutes. Next week on In Our Spare Time, we'll be talking about Shakespeare and music. <laughs>